On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. Uh, we would usually start right now with a review of what's in this morning's papers, but I'm going to put that off for a little while because I want to start today with what I announced a few minutes ago, and I didn't mean that as any kind of an exaggeration or hyperbole, as one of the, the world's leading public health experts, to try and give us some guidance on what we can learn from a pandemic. Now, I know you're probably sick to death of hearing about COVID at this point, but it is still part of our lives. And for some of you listening today, you will very much know that it is part of your lives because you may feel somewhat constrained about even going out and about or even perhaps going to visit family today uh, for any kind of an Easter holiday. Um, But there's all this talk about the Swedish model, the New Zealand model, and even these days the the Chinese model. They're all ways for societies to try and tackle the problems that are raised by the pandemic. And they are the models whose countries that we're probably aware of. But it does beg a question, which is the the right way, if there is such a thing as the right way? And, And why is it that countries paid such attention to their own successes and failures, but they didn't really learn from the experiences of others? Well, Professor Devi Schreeder has been with us on the show before. She's a professor and chair of global public health at the University of Edinburgh. She's a member of Scotland's COVID advisory group and she's a member of the Royal Society Data Evaluation Group, which had input into SAGE in the United Kingdom. She's also the author of Preventable, How a Pandemic Changed the World and How to Stop the Next One, a book which is published this coming Thursday. And Devi has agreed to, to rejoin us on the show today. Devi, you're very welcome and thank you again uh, for joining us. The title probably tells the story, uh, but in your own words, what is the premise of your book out this week? Yeah, so the book basically takes us back two years to look at what has happened in all parts of the world, from where it started in Wuhan in China to South Korea, goes to Senegal, to Italy, here to, you know, Britain and Europe, and then over to the United States and, then you know, Latin America. So it's the idea of how much of the calamity that unfolded was preventable and what can we learn better for next time. Are there some countries then which did better at learning from events as they went along than others, or is even that too binary a question? I think that's definitely true. I mean, that's one of the points of the book, that it starts with South Korea and them experiencing a MERS outbreak, which is another coronavirus, which is quite serious. It kills about a third of people who get it. And based on that, they revised their pandemic preparedness plans. So they were ready for a coronavirus. And so were, you know, East Asian countries who had SARS outbreaks, another coronavirus. But even in West Africa and places like Senegal, they had had Ebola quite recently. So they just changed their structures to be not Ebola response structures, but COVID response structures. So in a way, places that had an experience of an infectious disease they had to manage could quickly pivot to SARS-CoV-2. They didn't have to start from scratch, basically. Um, You mentioned just South Korea there, and it's something that you mentioned a little bit more in detail in the book. Um, They implemented at the time what we in Europe would probably have seen as something of an authoritarian response. Now, that's not to say that it wasn't the correct one to do, but for for people who aren't familiar with what South Korea did, um, they gave the contact tracers the power to access even credit or debit card transactions so that within minutes they could tell where somebody had been and who they might have spread it to. So effectively, civil liberties get completely pushed to one side for the benefit of public health. Um, Is that the sort of uh, response that you would only ever really get in a country that has a short-term memory of having to deal with another similar infectious outbreak? Yeah, I mean, that was a trade-off they chose. So they kept freedom of movement. They never had the kind of stay-at-home lockdowns that we had in Western countries. They never had also huge shutdowns of all restaurants or all you know businesses and things like that. What they did was keep them open, but build up their testing and tracing. And the price of that was privacy. And I think that's really the debate I'm trying to provoke among democracies, which is to say, if you've got to pick your poison, which one are you going to pick? Do we want to do stay-at-home lockdowns? Could we actually have done testing and tracing, but you give up some privacy? Could you have done, you know, other models, 
New Zealand bubbled itself off from the world. In the end, there was a price to pay. You couldn't have it all. And so different countries kind of chose the path they wanted to take and their citizens in a way bought into that model. So I guess then that the purpose of the book is to not only to provoke that debate, but also to get people to realise that there is a different suite of options that we in Europe probably thought that lockdown was the, the blunt tool that you might have to go to again. And, and your point is that that's not the case. No, not at all. I mean, the thing I was saying from the start is when we went into lockdown, the way to exit lockdown quickly was to have testing in place because what you wanted to be doing was isolating only those who were infectious. Again, this is in the pre-vaccine area rather than everybody. A lockdown basically treats everyone like they're potentially infectious and tries to keep them apart. What you want to do and what South Korea did was said, okay, we're just going to identify those who are infectious through testing. They set up testing really early and then making sure they're isolated and supported through isolation. And that was the way they kept on top of their numbers and actually kept their numbers incredibly low until currently when they're experiencing a large wave with Omicron, but now it's being done in a largely vaccinated population. So they're not taking the fatalities that we took because of course they're now largely protected mm. through having a successful vaccination program. Um, South Korea had a certain amount of carrot though, as well as the stick. Tell us about that. Exactly. So if you were in isolation, you got a payment, financial payment, you got psychological support, you got toiletries, food, whatever you might need, and you got check-ins. And if you felt slightly unwell, you'd go into an isolation center where they would actually monitor you. And if you got even more unwell, they would move you quickly into a hospital. And so what that also meant is that even early on, people got early intervention medically, so they didn't get to kind of a severe state of illness. And I think one of the problems in Western countries is the message of don't come in until you're really ill. People ended up in hospital already being quite sick. And then doctors struggled, in fact, to kind of deal with how far they had already descended. Um, into being in quite kind of a severe state. Did that also mean then, by the by, that you didn't have as much transmission within households? Because that, obviously that was the, the major symptom that we saw over here, that if you had a lockdown and you were forcing everybody to stay at home, then you were basically guaranteeing that if COVID was already in the house, everyone else would get it. And this seems like a way to have avoided that. Exactly. So they gave people the option. So it wasn't forced. But what they said to people is if you want to go into an isolation center, they're there and you'll be also cared for, meaning your oxygen will be taken, you know, making sure you have enough fluids, making sure you're fed. And so, yeah, you can imagine, especially if someone who's in their 30s gets it, they live with their elderly parents, they might say, actually, I'd rather go to an isolation center where I'll be taken care of to make sure I don't expose my family, especially if you live in a multi-generational household. So this was something I think, you know, was kind of discussed early on in Western countries, but wasn't acted upon. On. Also because of the practicalities of thinking, well, how would we set these up? South Korea just did it based on the MERS experience. And I think that is something to learn because if you can break household transmission, then you, of course, reduce the amplifying factor of spread among all those other members who go out and maybe circulate and infect mm. others. Um, without, again, trying to make it too binary, because I know you're trying to provoke a debate around the, the various different approaches that there might have been. Um, South Korea being one, are there any other countries which had standout experiences which maybe should have garnered more attention in this part of the world? Well, I think, you know, even a country like Senegal in foreign policy magazine looked across responses and rated Senegal second in the world. Mm -hmm. And the reason was because they moved very early on to actually try to limit spread by testing people coming into the country um, and then putting them into isolation. They knew they couldn't manage a wave of cases because it would overwhelm their hospitals. They're a very low resource country with limited health personnel. So considering that, they actually managed to work very preemptively to kind of manage those cases. The problem now for them is Omicron has taken off is actually vaccinations haven't reached those countries. They've only vaccinated about 10% of their population and largely with um, you know, Sinopharm or luckily AstraZeneca from here 
but not through Pfizer and Moderna. So the problem we've now seen is, you know, low-income countries who have done well now haven't been able to get those vaccines to be able to kind of exit the way other countries have using mass vaccination. So if Senegal took that approach because it knew that its health infrastructure was so poor, then I suppose on the flip side, were there other countries that said that their economy was so so brittle or I guess is so so relatively paltry that it almost wasn't worth saving and that something more sweeping was was merited in their case. Well, yeah, I mean, you saw like Vietnam, for example. So Vietnam came out early on and they said, well, actually, we can't we don't have the health infrastructure, but we also can't do furlough and economic packages to support businesses for a lockdown. So they went for strict elimination. They basically stopped all flights in and out of the country and said, we will take the hit to our tourism industry. But in response, we can keep normal life going within our borders. Again, Omicron's changed that picture now. They're taking a wave of cases, but that helped them in the first year or two where they said, actually, to save the economy, we can't have spread. Because what you see is when you have substantial spread, it's not just the restrictions. It's also people changing their behavior, not going able, getting sick, not going to work, mm. but also people avoiding marketplaces, avoiding travel, avoiding public transport. And so I think... It's whole, oh, is it health or the economy is kind of a false, like, you know, it's, it was a false one. You, you could save both if you were very strategic and hold out for a vaccine. Was there something unique to European countries which effectively thought that they could sort of do both, that they, they thought they could manage to just truck along and keep their health infrastructure ticking over to not have it completely overwhelmed while also trying to, to keep their economies on lifeline? Is that a privilege that Europeans had or was it naive to think that they could struggle on the way that they did? Well, I think we can see it was quite naive because if you look at kind of who experienced the harshest lockdowns and also huge loss of life, it has been largely kind of look at European countries um, as well as the United States. And part of that has to do, I think, with wanting to have it all. People just hadn't experienced infectious disease outbreaks. They wanted to be able to go and have their normal life and be able to travel abroad and not have any infringements on their privacy. They wanted it all and have health services and have a doctor waiting if they needed to get checked. They didn't realize that actually this was a situation where there had to be difficult decisions made and things prioritized and trade-offs done. And I think it's just the success of how well infectious diseases have been managed, that we don't really have that memory of the destruction they can cause. I mean, the history of humanity is the history of germs and, you know, bacteria and viruses trying to kill us off at various points and us trying to stay ahead of it. That would have been a great subtitle for the book, actually, The History of Humanity being the History of Germs. But I suppose that's maybe the, the, the nature of the, the work that you do in Edinburgh and everywhere else that you, you moonlight as well. Um, talk to me about the role of political leadership then in all of this, because I know this is a theme that you touch on in the book, that there are some countries which even aside from the infrastructure or the, the um, you know, the national setups that they had, that there was also still a very crucial role for government leaders and whether they took it seriously or not. Yeah, I mean, I think the point I try to draw out is in probably all countries, they got very similar range of scientific advice. And the question was which ones governments and leaders took when they had views of how we could manage this and the trade-offs that would entail. And I think what you did see is countries that had populist leaders, think of Brazil with Bolsonaro, United States with, you know, um, Trump, and then, you know, in parts of Britain with, 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 <laughs> with Boris Johnson, that there was this populist style of, oh, you know, it's not that bad. It's like the flu. They all got it. They all seem to survive it and kind of underplay it based on that. Um, and so I think, you know, going forward, what really is remarkable is just what kind of personality and leadership style do you have and how that affects how someone makes decisions and decides to deal with the crisis. Um, and that just comes down, I think, less to party politics and more to personality. 
and who that person is in charge when they're faced with really difficult decisions. Well, even aside from personality, obviously this has been a story with many twists and turns over the last couple of years. And I know, for example, here in Ireland, uh, when we began to understand that this was an airborne disease, that this wasn't something that just lived on hard surfaces which you could combat by washing your hands, that it was airborne, that you needed masks and ventilation and everything else, that it took a long time almost for governments to sort of pivot their messaging and to realise that what they'd been saying on day one maybe wasn't the most appropriate. And I wonder, have you found, was it the case that governments maybe felt like that they didn't have the scope to backtrack or that they felt like trying to evolve their policies would be a bit of a climb down, even if it was scientifically the right thing to do? Yeah, I think we were quite slow, for example, with face masks and saying to people, you know, we would go into a gym and kind of disinfect the treadmill, but they wouldn't think about the person running next to them who was Mm -hmm. breathing heavily. And that was kind of, I think, at the start, kind of difficult messaging. And I had to pivot saying to people, I almost give the analogy sometimes of smoke, like of secondhand smoke. And that's how you have to think of it in terms of who you're around and how they're breathing. Um, but I think all of it, some of it has to do with the solutions too. It was much easier to focus on one meter distancing, two meter distancing, asking people to wash their hands and to say, oh, actually, if you're in a crowded bar, you can be you know, four meters away from someone, you're likely to get infected. It's harder messaging for them because all of a sudden trying to give advice to keep workplaces safe, different areas safe becomes harder. So I think part of it also became that defining it as airborne made the solution so much more difficult mm. in terms of actually what can you do about it. And now that's why there's a focus on clean air, ventilation, getting outside, having kind of airflow windows open um, and things like that. But obviously much harder to deal with a virus that spreads airborne than one that's just on what they call fomites or surfaces. Mm. Um, Has all of this been something of a learning curve uh, for you as well? Because you're obviously very eminent and very established and very knowledgeable on a whole area, the whole panoply of different public health issues. Uh, And at the outset, and I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth by this, and you can correct me if, if I've misunderstood you, but you would have been from day one in favour, at least of the theory of what we now call zero COVID, this idea of pursuing total eradication if it were possible. Um, Is it fair to say that even if it were possible at at the start, that given the more efficient variants, that that's just not going to be a runner anymore? Yeah, so my view has kind of evolved as it went along. When it first emerged in China, the idea was could China, you know, burn it out? As we've done with SARS and MERS, could this be completely taken away from the human populations, eradication? Once it got out of China and it started spreading in various countries, then my view changed to saying, okay, well, in populations that are high resource, can control their borders, have good healthcare system, good testing, actually elimination until a vaccine would be optimal because every infection averted for six months or eight months could mean someone could live in a post-vaccine area. So I was for maximum suppression, also with the hope the vaccines would offer sterilizing immunity, meaning once you're vaccinated, you couldn't pass it on. Mm. Then when we came clear, we got vaccines and we got more transmissible variants. We learned, well, the vaccines can't stop transmission and the variants are so transmissible it's pretty impossible to stop them spreading south korea for example has stopped testing and tracing with omicron they say it moves too quickly their systems can't cope and so now we have to evolve our view to say okay the picture's changed again and now we have to accept i think all countries that we do need to live with covid but how do we do that in a way that means people don't die of it and that means mass vaccination antiviral therapies getting testing in place so people can get access to antivirals quickly if they're unwell and they know they have COVID and trying to kind of also find a treatment to long COVID so that when people get infected, they have a way to get better, given we know infections are more and more difficult to kind of avoid, even if you're cautious. So I think kind of, it's also the point of the book, what we knew changed in every month. And of course we wish it could have stopped in China Mm -hmm. in January, 2020. But at each point I've kind of tried to evolve based on what was happening with vaccines, what's happening with variants and also the idea 
think of that winter wave in 2020, 2021, how many of those people could have lived had they been vaccinated? Vaccines would have arrived a couple months later. So that was kind of the puzzle where I was like, let's just get to zero until we can vaccinate. And now, okay, the picture's changed. We have to live with it. How do we manage it so we reduce death and disability? Yeah, well, just on that final note then, because now that we know how possible it is to get reinfected, and even if you've had three or four jabs, you're not totally immune from infection or reinfection. And that to most of us would then seem like COVID is going to be with us forever. Uh, Mild for most, thankfully, but still lethal for some. And I wonder what you think is the best way to, to live with that so that people who have underlying vulnerabilities for whom COVID could be literally a matter of life or death, how do we try and make sure that they're not locked out of life? Well, I think there it's, again, there's work to continue to improve the vaccines, but also getting antiviral out. There are new antiviral pills that are very effective, especially in those who are in vulnerable groups or immunocompromised, at stopping the descent into severe health outcomes. But the problem now has been supply, availability, the change that basically mean when someone starts having feeling slightly unwell, can they go to a pharmacy, quickly get tested, find out they have COVID, and then start their pills. In the United States, they're calling it test to treat, and that's the main way they're trying to manage this for those groups where vaccines aren't as effective. Um, but I think we have, we've always kind of dealt with infectious diseases by this transition from what you call harsh non-pharmaceutical interventions, keeping people apart to saying, well, okay, how do we manage it using scientific tools, new therapies, new drugs, new vaccines, and try to keep on top of it while we live our normal life and mix and be social and do all the things that make us human. Uh, it's fascinating stuff, and I'm sure many people will want to pick up the book when it's published this coming Thursday. The book is called Preventable, How a Pandemic Changed the World and How to Stop the Next One, and its author is Professor. Professor Debbie Schreeder. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us this morning on The Record and happy Easter to you. Uh, I should just say, by the way, if you want to do a little bit more of a deep dive into the impacts of the zero COVID model that's still being pursued by China, if you want to listen back to the Taking Stock podcast this week with Mandy Johnson, she's discussing the economic impact on China of the the, uh, the rigorous lockdowns that they're still imposing on many, many cities to try and keep Omicron at bay. That is available to you. Listen now on the Newstalk.com uh, website or on the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. 